Hello, and welcome to the Cocktails and Conversation podcast. I'm Dana Marie Rockmore, the founder of the Dinner Party Project and co-founder of The Welcome House. I'll be inviting intriguing guests over to my home to chat about some of my favorite things, cocktails, story, the Enneagram, and rest. Hello, friends. Happy day to you. Thank you for following along all the things that the Dinner Party Project is doing and up to. And this year has already been flying by at record speeds, which is insane. But I wanted to keep you posted on a series that we're having coming up called Orlando Matters, the Dinner Party Project dinner series. Um, super excited about it. We got some feedback from like our five-year party. And what we found was that people wanted more themed dinners around industries and topics. So that is what we are doing. We are doing a five-month series, which started in January. We started off with... Um, What's new and fun in Orlando at the balcony, which was so much fun. And then we also did a dog lovers dinner party at the Wellborn, which was so gorgeous. Um, and so many cute pups joined us. I wanted to let you know about dinners that are coming up. We do have one ones in February. We are doing a dinner party for interior designers, something that is very um, of interest to me on February 24th at the Heavy. And we will be having delicious food by Mockingbird Orlando. So if you are an interior designer, anything around that area, or just heavily your own home interior designer, um, we would love to have you join us around the dinner table. For our second dinner, we are doing... Um, uh, affordable housing solutions on February 26th at East End Market, which we would also very much love for you to be a part of. We're also excited for this series to partner with Tito's Vodka. They have generously given us the capacity to be able to donate to, um, for each month, we get uh, $500 per month to donate to a fund, a local fund. <clears throat> And we are choosing for January, we got to donate to the Pet Alliance. And for February, we're choosing to donate to the Coalition for the Homeless, which has to do with immediate housing, but kind of along the same lines. So we're very grateful for that. And in March, we will be doing dinners around health and wellness also at East End Market, which we're very excited about. And the second dinner party will be around food deserts and food disparity within Orlando. So we'd love for you to join us for that one. Uh, in April, we will be doing a dinner for the LGBTQ community, which should be a very colorful and a lot of fun. And then uh, the second dinner for that month will be around inclusion. How do we um, learn better ways to love our, our community and language and questions that people might have? So we would love to have you join us for those. And then in May, we would love your input. So we are doing two dinner parties in May and we're taking a poll as to what industry and what topic that you would like to talk about. So DM us, um, email us, message us. You can vote. Uh, we'll be voting on social media and other places for you to let us know what you would like to see gathered around the dinner table. So thanks once again to Tito's for supporting us in this uh, dinner series and and all the people that are kind of collaborating to make this happen, but we would love for you to participate. So we hope to see you around the dinner table soon. Hello. 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 Thanks for joining in. And, um, today's cocktail is maybe the, maybe the easiest ever. So you could make it literally at any point. You only need three ingredients and 
Yeah. It's kind of a throwback. So my friend Ryan told me he wasn't um, having alcohol right now because he's <clears throat> doing a, a Daniel fast. And so I wanted to, I guess, do something that would be easy to drink without alcohol. So I found something called a dirty Shirley, um, which I don't really love sodas, but for some reason, um, in my twenties, when I was traveling, I would get Shirley temples all the time from, from restaurants. Yeah. So basically obviously a Shirley temple is just like Sprite and grenadine. And then I just added Tito's vodka to mine. So I made a dirty Shirley and he just had a regular Shirley temple. Um, anyway, make it or not. I would, I would, uh, suggest it. It's pretty, pretty dang easy. And my guest today is Ryan Adams, um, who is one of many Ryan Adams. We have one here in our city, which is wonderful. And I have known him for many years now and have really enjoyed knowing him. And I think the character that he displays in ways of taking care of people, which is part of his job. He is the pastor at City Beautiful Church. And he's also really, really knowledgeable on the Enneagram and has studied for many years on it. So I've done some workshops with him and obviously really, really, really love talking about the Enneagram as you will see. So he has lots of stories to share and lots of Enneagram info. So hopefully you will dig in and enjoy. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Welcome Dana. to the Cocktails and Conversations podcast. <laughs> Cheers. Slancha. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. So I know at the moment you're actually not imbibing yes. with any alcohol <laughs> yeah. for a little bit. <laughs> 40 less days, 40 days minus. My, yes, exactly. Minus, minus the, the Sabbaths. Minus the Sabbaths. Yeah. So I do mine oh. on Saturday. You take Saturday as a Sabbath and you, right. You, okay. And, and imbibe. Got it. If, if I so choose. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I know people that do both ways. I think I've mostly have do done straight through. straight through. I think if, what people, is the reasoning yeah. behind that? So if you're, you, so it's Daniel fast, you can do it as a diet, not uh, a thing. Yeah. Not sustainable for me. Right. I, that's long. I, I know people that do it like beginning of the year for like 21 days. Oh, sure. Yeah. Straight. So traditionally any kind of fast, like, so we're in Lent, right? Which started Ash Wednesday, which was two Wednesdays ago, right? Nope. Yeah. Last Wednesday? Last Wednesday. Last Wednesday. So today is Wednesday. Yeah. One week ago. One week ago. Um, traditionally any fast you break on the Sabbath because the fast is kind of seen as like spiritual work. So you don't do it then. So it's, if it's for spiritual purposes, really? you wouldn't be consistent with something necessarily. And I kind of challenge people on that when it comes up to Lent and they're like, oh, I want to lose five pounds. So I'm going to do this diet. It's like, well, well that's not quite what this motivator. is. Motivator. Right. Exactly. And I think it's really good because you don't get so caught up in like, I'm being so disciplined. I'm doing this thing right. You know right. what I mean? To even pause and go, even from doing the right thing, I'm going to take a break in a way. And just enjoy. Yes. This. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so go back one second. You yeah. said you you take the Sabbath off because it's not work, and so you take off whatever you're giving up. Yes, because if it's a day of rest, then then you're resting from you're resting the fast, even from the fast. Yeah. So it's so from huh. Ash Wednesday to Easter, it's forty days 
without the, without the, the Sundays would be typically people's sure, Sabbath, sure, sure. for me, it's a, a Saturday. Sabbath day. Yeah. Ah, okay. 40 days minus one. 40 days minus one. Yeah. Okay. So you are doing 40 days minus Sabbath. Right. And then you've already knocked out one week. Yeah. Yeah. So many less days than 40. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely a long way to go. Okay. I digress. <laughs> so we are drinking, I am drinking something called a dirty Shirley, mm -hmm. which I, I loved Shirley temples for some reason. Um, a lot when I used to travel, when I would go to restaurants, like, and didn't, didn't buy a drink or something for some yeah. reason, I would just always love a, uh, a Shirley temple, but I made mine with Tito's grenadine and Sprite. And then yours is just a straight up Shirley temple. Love it. Great. <laughs> love it. <laughs> when you're not drinking drinks, um, that are usually served to five-year-olds, yeah. what are, what would be like uh, a favorite cocktail of yours? And do you make any cocktails? Yeah. It's so funny because I think when I, like a lot of people, you know, you start drinking beer and, you know, liquor seems like uh, an acquired taste. Kind of like, I mean, coffee too. You know, when you're a kid, coffee is uh -huh. the worst. Still the Still worst. Still the worst. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you kind of grow to, into appreciation for it. So I lived in a house with a bunch of guys like a decade ago in Nashville and we decided that white Russians were going to be our thing because of the yeah. big Lebowski. Okay. So we got maybe a week and a half into that. And like a white Russian every night is the That's actual worst. <laughs> it is not a good idea. It's, no. a, it's a neat kind of novelty drink every once in yep. a while, but I do not. Not on the regular. That. No, no. Um, so I had a, I had a while where Manhattans were kind of my jam. Okay. That was, and it was like, it's pretty easy to make at home. Do you have There's, a favored, um, whiskey bourbon? If, so if I'm doing something, okay, there's going to be several answers to that. Okay. So my favorite American whiskey would be Gentleman Jack. Yum. It's delightful. Delightful. Um, if I'm making mixed drinks and it's like a party, I'm going to go with Bullet. Oh, okay. Bourbon or rye. Okay. Both of those are excellent for Always mixed drinks. Always bourbon for me. If it's Irish whiskey, it's going to be Bushmills because that's my hometown whiskey. Cool. And then if it's scotch, um, I kind of mix it up a lot there because sometimes we'll use those in cocktails, but usually mm -hmm. I wouldn't use Irish and Irish whiskeys and scotch in cocktails. Yeah. But then if it's just normal cocktails, like, like an everyday, mm -hmm. uh, Evan Williams, either 1792 okay. or just the black label stuff. Or in the eggnog. Or in the eggnog. I'm not going to Yeah. Yeah. Evan, Evan does I've, it right when I've, it's like the cheap $11 bottle of whiskey. Yep, That's the one I have go definitely... For. Drunk many uh, an eggnogs with, <laughs> with with Evan Williams ready to go. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So that's I don't I don't venture too much past whiskey. I okay, don't, don't have strong opinions on the other ones. Yeah, so you stay in your lane of whiskey. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And it's like it's like with most things in life, like you kind of find for me anyway. I find my like here's my port of call, and I always know I can reach for this, and I'm never going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. And then every once in a while, you take a risk but then you can always come home. You know what I mean? Sure. So I think I'm kind of mostly a creature of habit Yeah. in that way. Mm -hmm. Do you, mm. do you, do you run things out though? And it's like, you'll do like, I don't know, Tito's for three weeks and you're like, I'm done. I'm moving on to gin and then do that for three weeks. And like, 
burn it out or do you no, not really. sprinkle everything through I them? S- yeah, I sprinkle everything through. I do have, I do go through seasons of like within a certain drink, like there's a, a cocktail called a black orchid, okay. which I've been serving for a couple of months and I cannot stop it because I love to drink it myself. Oh. And then I've really gotten hooked on like gin and tonics. So whether it's uh-huh. just like insanely simple yep. or yep. I make it somehow more interesting. Um, and then I do always have my go-tos of like favorite drinks. So a whiskey sour is my all-time favorite, oh, okay. favorite drink. Yeah. That will never change. But I go through... So I kind of try to incorporate different spirits like throughout either dinner parties or just myself. Mm-hmm. But then I sometimes will be like stuck on like one drink. Yeah. For a yeah. While. Yeah. Yeah. And then I have to force myself to like find something new. So today I was like, what am I going to do that's different? And this is like really pretty stupid and simple, but I was like, well, it is at least it'll be something different than I've been normally drinking. Yeah. yeah. And it's refreshing. It is refreshing. I mean, this is pretty simple. Yeah. And yeah. light and, and kind of crisp. Yeah. And we're already and like... sweet. We're starting to feel like summer a little bit, so... Oh, it's gosh. Not so bad. Yeah. I have, I have enjoyed some of the days that have felt like still moderately, yeah. right? So those Today's, days, the mm-hmm. cold... the ver- Like the three cold days that we get, mm-hmm. that's hot toddy season. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Bonfire... Hot toddy, which is an, it's kind of like, yes. it's like gin and tonic where it's like, you can go super baseline. Here's the ingredients, throw it in some Gosh. hot water and you're done, but you can really play Sometimes with that. Sometimes I do that when I'm sick. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's got everything you need in it for mm-hmm. that, but it's the also lemon. really good for sitting around a bonfire. Yeah. Yeah. You can mix it out. You could do rum and mm-hmm. lime and you can kind of go in that direction with mm-hmm. it. So it's really versatile. Have you ever had a hot toddy at, um, urban cowboy No. in Nashville? I don't No, I don't think so. Oh my gosh. It is so insanely delish. <laughs> I the other I don't know when it was cold the other day. I was like, man, I wish I had one of those hot toddies. They were and you like would go outside and sit by the yeah. fire, right? Yeah, and it's I, like I've, I've been twenty degrees. Like, what's so? What's their angle? Like, what makes theirs so? I good? don't. It is very. It's creamy somehow. So it's like a very. Wow. They put some kind of cream on top, which seems like anticlimactic, but it's mm-hmm. very delicious. And then they put, I think, like. Definitely like nutmeg or star anise or something on top of it. And anyway, anyway, so delicious. Next time you're in Nashville, go to Urban Cowboy. Hopefully it's still on the menu because it was like... And it's cold outside. Yeah. I mean, perfect for fall or winter. And it's still spring is not very warm. Yeah. And then a little bit more favored when it comes to the cool weather. Right. Yeah. God bless Nashville, mm-hmm. man. Um, around town, do you have maybe a couple of like top three places to go? Okay, grab a drink. Yeah, I um, I don't go out now as much as I used to. I think when I first moved here, that was a really great play way to get to know people. Hmm. Um, and so when we used to we used to do church, we had a six p.m. and an eight p.m service downtown and afterwards scott and i scott armstrong mm-hmm. we would go over to the courtesy and that was our jam mm-hmm. for and it, and it still would be i wish i wish i spent more time downtown than i actually do now sure um, but i love that place it was yeah. never busy on a sunday night mm-hmm. 
Um, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. We got to know the bartenders really well. And, so knowledgeable. Um, they had, they always have a great menu, but they're always, they're the kind of place you can go in and you can almost like play, if you get to know somebody, you can play games and go, give me something that, that is like a summer's kiss, you know, like that kind of like thing. And they'll create something for you or yeah. they'll try things out on you. And that kind of, like, and I just love that. You felt like you were never competing for space, mm-hmm. which is my, I think is the biggest turnoff for me when mm. it comes to going out for a drink. If I'm competing for space or sound, like I will sit at home and make these things. You know what I mean? It's not enjoyable to you. It really, it really isn't. Um, I think it's so valuable to have space. You can actually relate to it with people and not have to fight for it. You know? Sure. So courtesy is great. Um, I've had a couple of drinks over at Domu and that's actually nice. Domu is my number one. Is it really? Yep. They're cocktails. And the restaurant is, I think, my number one in yeah. Orlando. Oh, that's Hands down. Awesome. Yeah. Their cocktail menu is, is excellent. Their staff is excellent. Obviously, you've had the the Korean fried ring, Korean fried wings. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is They're awesome. I don't like I think I think that is like my perfect meal. Okay. Drinks and wings and ramen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's beautiful. I mean they've it just is. besides the no reservations thing. Yes. Yeah, but, but that's not so bad. Like I remember going there one time, put your name in, go across the street to park app CDs for an hour or whatever and come mm-hmm. back. And- right. You have to know that you're going to make a night out of yeah. it. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. So you either have to get there at five, put your name in, get yourself in early or come for like a late night nightcap where yep. you just have to know, all right, we're going to go. Then we'll make a night out of it. Yeah. And we know that we're not going to be upset waiting for at least an hour. Yeah, absolutely. That has been my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say but it's worth it. My third place, um, probably the Clatter Cottage, Curry Ford. So it's a, it's an Irish pub. Okay. So this is nearby house. And they used to be like, you'd go up past my place on Curry Ford where there's a new like Walgreens or whatever. And it was in this weird little strip mall. Okay. It was, it was fine. And they took a lot of the old stuff with them and they're more in the, uh, the hourglass district. It's like a freestanding building. They moved, they moved, but it was like closed down for almost a year because they were building out the new space. And, Damn. um, you go in and it feels really authentic and it's just, it's just, um, it's just beer and wine. It's not, they don't do cocktails. They don't mm-hmm. do whiskey or anything, but, um, it's a great atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've, I've, you know, gone there with friends on a number of occasions. And it's like a small food menu too. So if you like Irish food, that's you a pretty probably, decent option. Probably should, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, um, what is your like, go to, would it be beer? If you were going to be like my, if I had to choose one drink, would it be? Oh man. I've, I've always kind of, kind of rotated through that. I think early on it was like, by the time I was 21, it I wasn't into like binge drinking or even party drinking. Like we went to a little, um, went to a little brewery in St. Augustine had like a little flight there. And then there was one bar that had something like 150 bottles of beer from around the world. So we go there and we get like two of those because mm-hmm. they're expensive. You know, it's like mm-hmm. when you're a college mm-hmm. kid, $7. Eight for, dollars, yeah. You're right. like, okay, I'm going to have one and I'm right. going to enjoy it. So it was that for a while. And then I think I slowly switched over to whiskey. I think I would still generally say that my go-to would be whiskey mm-hmm. if I had to choose. But, um, I've been, I've been getting more into my younger brother. He was always into wine. Mm-hmm. So I've been getting more into that recently. And then my parents live in France. So we've 
kind of like learn through osmosis, I guess. <laughs> so they come back here and they complain about all the wine prices, of course. But then they're like, oh, we've yeah. had this and this, and this is delightful. So yeah. kind of like learning that palate a little bit more has been nice. But yeah, I'd, I'd say whiskey's kind of all right. still so your jam. ground zero. That is, yeah, bourbon is my favorite liquor. Do you ever do it straight or is it always? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I can do it straight. I don't, I don't really enjoy as much a scotch or a rye mm -hmm. straight. Um, right. So if I'm going to have it straight, it would be a bourbon. And then it's, it's harder to incorporate, I think a, a rye or a scotch into a cocktail. That makes sense. Yeah, no, I think, I, I think that's fair. You know, um, gosh, was it Hanson's though? They used to um, use Laphroaig, which is a very peaty scotch. So that's the one people t talk about, like, tastes like Band-Aids. I love it. Oh. I know. Yeah. You're the, <laughs> by your face, this is, <laughs> if you don't like Mezcal, you will hate Laphroaig. Okay. Um, Probably not for me. But they would make a cocktail where they would just wash the glass in Laphroaig. So just a dash in there, oh. kind of swill it around, pour it out, and then actually make this cocktail. And it was, it was some sort of whiskey cocktail still. It's kind of in that family. But so it just kind of had this air of like a peaty scotch. And I always thought that was really neat, but yeah, mm. you generally don't see cocktails made with scotch mm -mm. for good reason. Yeah. And also people just love scotch by themselves by itself. Yeah. Neat or but I like, I like, you know, like Manhattan's with rye, like a rye Manhattan. Right. Do you, do you make these at home? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So usually I think my, my go-to is usually like whatever whiskey I had, like I said, like bullet is a great option. Um, and then I, I'm not very picky on my vermouth, you know, so it's usually like this go like the second cheapest vermouth, I guess, you know what I mean? Like it's like a dollar more. Fair enough. Um, and then like a slice of orange mm. kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some simple syrup. So I was trying to think about the time that I've met you officially for the first time. Okay. So I've known you for a lot of years. Yeah. Um, and you were in Nashville for a lot of years. Mm -hmm. So I think I knew you before you moved down here officially, but I'm trying to think of like the first time. So I moved here in August of 2013. Wow. Um, has it been that long? Yeah. It's been six and a half six years. Um, so I visited and came down here to teach in, um, it was. At status. Yeah. It was August of 2011. Okay. Cause I think that's the first time I remember meeting you yes. or seeing you yeah. was teaching at status. Yeah. Yes. It's a long time ago. It's a long time ago. Almost nine years ago. I was like, it's probably at least been 10 years, but yeah. Close. 2011. Yeah. That's crazy. And then, yeah. Cause I would, I would go to Nashville pretty frequently because mm -hmm. some of my family is there and then you were at the anchor. Yes. Yes. So I had visited there a couple of times, but yeah, long time, I guess through status initially was the first time. Mm -hmm. And right? I think, I think we'd have a pretty decent Venn diagram of friendships that oh, we would have like intermingled in 100%, anyway. Yeah. Like here. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So we're going to jump into story, okay. which is one of my favorite things, which All I'm right. so excited to just like learn more about. Um, obviously we don't get a whole lot of choice in the place that we're placed in within the universe, like our family of origin, our mm -hmm. DNA, um, just 
where we get dropped off. And then we are all trying to muddle through and figure this thing out as we go along. Yeah. But I would love to kind of hear about your formative years and growing up as far as like, where were you born? Where were you born? What was, do you have siblings? Mm -hmm. What, what was your family like? Um, what was the kind of general feeling of like Ryan Adams first couple of years? Um, so I was born in Coleraine, Northern Ireland, which is, if anybody's familiar with the giant's causeway, it's kind of like our kind of main naturally occurring monument in in, so it's what on the coast. It? It's on the coast of Northern Ireland, kind of like facing Scotland. And um, there are these basalt columns that are hexagonal, and they all fit together, kind of like a like a like bees, a beehive. Except uh-huh. they're all stacked, like so. There are these long columns that are all hexagonal, and they kind of form these like almost like rolling hills that kind of roll into the ocean. It's a it's a geological formation that comes from um, volcanoes exploding, and then it freeze or it um the it hits the water and it cools so quickly it shoots up and it creates these bizarre shapes. Huh. So it really looks unnatural. Right. And that's But it is natural. It is. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. You see it a couple places in the world, but this is probably the most famous one. And um so yeah, um that's that's in Northern Ireland. Um and I was born right near there. Okay. Um parents are from there, like everybody like you know, in this craze of everybody doing their DNA tests and everybody's so excited, you know, especially like if you're an American, it's like you're, you're 2% Indian and 5% this, that, and the other, you know, for us, I just knew I was like, you're just straight up Irish hundreds of years. Just yeah. The lineage. You go through my mom's side a couple hundred years back and then you get to Scotland. Like that's, it's all like British Isles, you know, right. Way, way, way back. Apparently there's some French, but, um, so we are, yeah, Irish through and through. Um, so I was born in Coleraine. My dad is an Anglican priest. So it's the church of Ireland, okay, which is a subset of the church of England. And, um, so we were at a church called St. Patrick's there in Coleraine. And then when I was, uh, when I was three, we moved to Belfast, which is the capital of Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. This is, so that was, um, 1987. Also, happy birthday. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Sorry. Oh, thank you. Happy birthday. Yeah. Yes. Appreciate it. You are now 30... Six. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind saying it all day. Um, so, we yeah, moved to, to Belfast in 87. So, uh, you know, this is... Uh, the other thing that people know about Northern Ireland is the, the troubles. Conflict. You know, the kind of conflict between yeah. Protestants and Catholics from kind of mid-70s-ish until late 90s, kind of officially... Um, so Belfast was ground zero for that. Um, so, you know, growing up there was really interesting because it's not out and out civil war, but there's always these little reminders here and there. And even we would go back every other year to visit family and it'd be, you know, um, this police station, all the windows have been blown out of it in every window for three blocks or, you know, on the new, it, it was things like you wouldn't. Oh, you wouldn't witness things necessarily, but you saw the after effects of something that had just happened, you know, car bombs or whatever. Wow. Yeah. So really odd place. Did it feel like a city with tension? I like, think, did you I see think, between people? So I think I was too young to really internalize it. Hmm. I do like, so my earliest memory of church was our church, St. Aidan's in the Sandy Row. Um, my earliest memories of church was a, a tall brick brick wall with, um, barbed wire 
like cemented into the top of it and the pieces of glass lodged into that. And so that was, yeah, kind of. And like, you know, being really little and that was part of our church, but it was protection, you know? Um, and I think, so again, there was just like, you, you don't have like a, a cognitive understanding of it when you're little, but you feel some of those things. So like, um, I remember going to our grandparents' house. My dad's family's from Derry, which is up in the, the far north of the country. You go to the play rent ground and you bump into other little kids. And the first question they ask you is, are you a Catholic? Are you a Protestant? And you have to look around at the, um, like the sidewalks and the curbs to see if they've been painted any particular way, because that would indicate, what? yeah, like you can tell which neighborhood you're in. If you're in a Protestant neighborhood, there's going to be union Jack flags flying everywhere and everything like the curb will be painted red, white, and blue. But if you're in a, a Catholic neighborhood, which would be more, um, kind of called nationalists, like wanting to re- for North, the Northern Ireland to be part of the Republic, you might see mm-hmm. the Irish flag, which is green, white, and orange. Wow. So you don't know how to answer that question because you don't know what's going to happen on the other side of it because you don't know who you're talking to. So when I was growing up and even like in visiting when we were a little bit older, there was like those little moments that you're like, Oh yeah, this is a thing. Would you not be like welcomed in a, like on no. the other side of the, no, cause I right, would like, be don't... Protestant. Right. Yeah, so, um, yeah. So that's I mean, a huge. It, everything's everything. Yeah. It's a lot of things are segregated. Like schools are segregated. Neighborhoods are segregated. Um, and there's been tremendous strides over the past, like 30 years for integration and reconciliation. Sure. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, you know, that was the first five plus years of my life. And then, um, in September of 89, we moved to the States, we moved to Michigan. So my parents always felt like they were called to be missionaries. They thought like we'd end up in Africa or something. Um, but in 88, we went on vacation to Maryland and they fell in love with it. Yeah. To Maryland? Yeah. So, um, a lot, because pastors don't necessarily make a lot of money, they'll do these exchanges with other pastors. Like you come and you live in my house. Right. Like a home swap. Yep. You take services at my church. Sure. And I'll do the same for you. And this is how we get out and explore. Yeah. So we were in Pocomoke, Maryland, which is like right on the tip of the peninsula. Okay. And they loved it and they felt like we were called to be here. So my dad, uh, kind of put in for a transfer, started applying, we ended up in Michigan, which is not like Maryland. No. <laughs> um, but we were in a small town there for uh, eight years. Did then, you want to leave Ireland? I, um, no, no. I mean, I, uh, I remember just kind of being informed this was going to happen. And I was five. And then my brother, Scott. So you have siblings? Was, yep. Scott was three. He was okay. two years younger than me. And then mom was six months pregnant with my youngest brother, Joel, when we moved. So... Yeah. It's, you don't understand what that means and you don't understand, you don't understand countries. You don't understand 3000 miles of ocean, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's a huge cultural, it's huge because our, our country was so small. Like everybody's accessible in half a day. Um, did did you have a lot of like family, like nuclear family, everybody, everybody lives in Northern Ireland. So it was moving away from grandparents and cousins and ex, Extended your kind whatever's. of um, immediate slashes yeah. extended family was all pretty close by. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so moving was a big deal even for that. Um, and that became, a, I think a big part of my kind of origin story was reconciling 
that loss of um, identity. Sort of. It's how do you how do you retain an identity that you can't fully inhabit anymore, mm-hmm. but the new the new one doesn't quite fit either. Mm-hmm. You're caught between two worlds. So we talk about it as like third culture kids, and there's a lot of different variations. Like, you know, here it's for us a lot of our friends that are born to immigrant parents, and if they still go to like a Spanish speaking church, for example, and there's, maybe they're still partly in a Latino culture, mm-hmm. but they went to school and maybe school was pretty mixed or their social lives are more anglicized or, you know, like it's still Florida, it's still Orlando. So it's still pretty Anglo. Like a third culture kid is kind of living in between those two sure. worlds. And so Close for me, it was a little bit more salt, subtle because everybody was, you know, in Michigan anyway, like it's predominantly white speak English mm-hmm. So as a five, was there any Irish community there? No, no, not really. Right. It wasn't big enough. Um, my mom's best friend was a lady from England and there was uh, a couple where the husband was from New Zealand. Hmm. And so we actually spent a lot of time with them because there's still kind of that British mentality and solidarity. So you spend boxing day together and that kind of thing. Um, or if somebody's, if somebody's going home to visit, it's like, what, what do you need brought back? <laughs> like tea and Tim, chocolate. Tim Tams. Yes, exactly. All that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I don't think I've, I fully, I think I intuited it, but I, I didn't necessarily have the language for it until much later. Did your parents still try to keep in touch with Irish traditions or Irish? Yeah, yeah, in a way, but I don't think it was like, it wasn't necessarily a con my, my experience of it wasn't that it was a, conscious, okay, we're going to do it this way. Because there's a lot of like, I don't know, non-cultural markers. Like we don't do St. Patrick's Day. Um, my, I remember the first time someone had a St. Patrick's party in the church and they invited us and they made corned beef and cabbage. And my mom had no idea what that was. So just like these little markers, like they're not huge drinkers. So it wasn't like we had Guinness and Powers right. Irish whiskey in the house all the time, you know? Um, so it's hard to say what kinds of traditions we kept up because it's not like we necessarily had a lot. I think there were mentalities. Mm-hmm. Um, there were ways of being in the world that would be very, and Northern Ireland's interesting because it's almost a hybrid of being British and being Irish simultaneously. What would be a classic case of sticking to that culture? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I actually have a friend in town from Northern Ireland and, uh, or from Northern Ireland who lives here. And one of my best friends is, uh, he's a pastor in Dublin. And I texted them recently. I said, do you ever find that Americans think that you're way too blunt? And both of them in all caps responded all the time. <laughs> so there's, uh, Northern Irish people tend to be very self-deprecating and, and humor might be a little bit more biting. And you can kind of understand if you're coming from a culture that has a history of civil strife. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of tension, like you round off the tension with a certain kind of humor. And I found Mm. from my experience, I think that Americans tend to be a little bit more sensitive and Mm -hmm. self serious Mm -hmm. than Irish people would be. Um, so that was a huge thing. Right. Um, I think there were, there were other things like, um, don't be like Irish people. Um, the idea of manifest destiny, which I think is really woven into American mentality of like, we've got to keep going. We've got to achieve. We've got to do more. We've got to be more. Mm. It's just not a part of Irish culture. Mm. Like 
the accent changes when you move 10 miles down the road because those people don't go anywhere. Like you don't go anywhere. You stay in the same place. You live in the same town. It's starting to change more now with globalization, but for a long time, it's a very, very local way of living and having dreams and aspirations to succeed aren't necessarily part of the culture. That's so fascinating. Yeah. I can't imagine culture without that. Right. Right. And then, and then, I mean, of course it is an overgeneralization as any are, because obviously there's a lot of amazing Irish people who have done amazing things. And people from Northern Ireland, you know, Gary Lightbody from Snow Patrol or Liam Neeson or C.S. Lewis right. or John Lennox, you know, like we've produced our share of, um, you know, amazing entrepreneurs and, and talent. Yeah. yeah. But there would be a general sense of like, just stay in your lane, keep your nose down, right. do with that. Get your job, yeah. live your life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I can't, yeah. I can't attest to having the capacity to understand that. Yeah. Um, so the general vibe was pretty embracing. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think for the most part, um, you know, and I, I know we'll talk Enneagram in a little bit, um, but my dad would be very similar to me. Very, he's very laid back. I remember, um, I think it was their 25th wedding anniversary. I think it's a good, it sums them up. Well, I asked them, what's the thing that you love most about the other person in all the world? Mm-hmm. And, um, mom said about dad, she said, I'm so all over the place. And like, I can get so emotionally wound up and he's so even keeled that he keeps me grounded. Mm-hmm. I said, Oh, that's beautiful. I said, dad, what's your favorite thing about mom? He said, well, she makes me take her halfway around the world if she wants it. <laughs> Cause he would never, if it was up to him, he wouldn't he, go anywhere, right. you know? And he's, she's, He's partnered her off to New Zealand for a month for their, their anniversary. And now they travel as much as they can. Mm -hmm. Um, and it like, so yeah, dad was always very stable, gentle. Mom was definitely more, uh, disciplinarian in the household and Mm, he worked, she, she didn't work until we were all in school. Um, and then it was part-time jobs. Um, so she was, she's, she was kind of a stay at home mom for the, that first part yeah. until Joel was five. So I would have been, so you like really 11. had like both your parents readily available. Yeah. To you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For the most part, I think, uh, I think the life of like, the life of a pastor, there are a lot of like, um, you know, evening responsibilities and that kind of thing. But they, I think they had pretty good boundaries and they were always pretty available and around. Um, I think growing up a pastor's kid was really interesting because there's a, there's a whole layer of expectation placed on you for what you're supposed to be in the church and, um, your responsibilities mm. in, in that regard and showing up to things and you're at every church function and, mm-hmm. and you sing the solo in the kids choir. And did you, yeah, I was also kind of oh. the oldest of ours. Yeah. But I mean, you grew up in church, you learn how to sing, you know, that, that's a big part. Uh, of it. not never, not everybody. No, maybe not everybody. That was my experience. <laughs> no one asked me to sing. No, <laughs> no but one's you, asking me to sing now, but you grew up singing. You know, I mean, I grew up singing, yeah. but I, nobody asked me as I was growing up. See, well, I to had be, to, right. And I was like, you know, I was an mm-hmm. acolyte, so I'm lighting the candles and then you're a lay reader and you're reading scripture out loud. And so you were very involved. Yeah, I was. And I, I don't think I necessarily resented it growing up. So if you don't know about the Anglican church, it's a, it's a liturgical church. So a lot of the prayers are uh, written down and are like 
uh, call and response, mm-hmm. which might be different from a lot of people's experience with non-denominational churches. So you go to church and you're praying the same prayers every week, which can feel really stuffy for some people. Mm-hmm. For me, I just kind of did it because that's just what you do. And again, my personality would be one where I'm not going to put up a fight. Um, I'm not going to strive for anything else. It's like, okay, this is how we do the thing. Right. And then when I got off to college and had this revelation in, you know, freshman year, like, oh, it's Sunday. I don't have to go to church if I don't want to, Mm -hmm. you know, and then that becomes the next week and the week after that. And it was about a year and a half of just kind of not taking it seriously and then starting to feel a lot kind of spiritually dry. And it was more recognizing it through my inability to show up for other people than it was to show up for myself again, because I was kind of asleep Mm. to myself in that season, but knowing I needed to kind of get back into some rhythms. And so went to a couple different churches. They felt really wishy-washy shallow to me. And I ended up in a little Episcopal church, which is the American Anglican church in, I went to college in St. Augustine. It was in Lincolnville Mm -hmm. and this little church. There's almost. Did that feel like comfort to you? It did. Because like. It did. But the difference was now I'm choosing it. Sure. And so I felt like receiving back my own tradition was a gift Mm -hmm. and I started to take it more seriously. And then I recognized like, oh my goodness, even though I've been adrift for a year and a half, like growing up that way in that kind of ritual formed me in my understanding of God and the universe and who I am and what's happening. And Mm -hmm. I had so much that I could continually call back on. So I had a really solid grounding in that regard, I think. It needed, I mean, it needed freshening up for sure. And then moving to Nashville after college yeah, and going to a vineyard church, which is charismatic church, which is totally different, um, really added on. Is it Anchor Vineyard Church? It used to be. We were kind of like the, the weird side vineyard church because the vineyard is a, it's a great movement, but a lot of the dudes that started it in the seventies are still in charge. Uh-huh. And so they want to do things the way that they did in the seventies. Cause that huh. worked then. Yeah. And we were a very young church that was mostly catering to subculture kids. Yeah. And we had other ways and of starting doing. young families. It felt like, yeah, it was exactly. like families that were now like, or kids that had right. been in that and then growing mm-hmm. into now you're like, right. right. And when I started, there were hardly any kids, you know? Mm. So it was even in that period, it was just like getting people married. Um, so we eventually left the vineyard because we felt like the direction that they were going or, or not going wasn't mm. what we were doing. And mm-hmm. so we became more independent, but the roots were always in charismatic renewal. So it's a lot right. of Holy spirit. It's a yeah. lot of, um, you know, laying hands and praying, but, and, and a lot of it was, some of it was kind of offensive to me at first, just more in the way you do church. But I knew early on, I really felt like the Lord told me like, I need to add all this. I'm not taking anything away, Mm. but I need you to have this experience that kind of will further ground what you already believe. And that really became, that's a very huge gamut from Anglican to a vineyard. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, it is. But the neat thing was it was a community of young people who weren't, so tied down to like denominational tribalism and said, whatever works, we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. So when I came in as someone who understood liturgy, they're like, Hey, teach us, show us, how do we do this? And kind of created space for me to contribute to this bigger thing. And it really became a sweet model to me of, of what I think is, I don't know, maybe the future of church in general is learning how to listen to one another and say, Hey, we're not going to, like wag our finger at something because it's Catholic, Greek, Orthodox, Baptist, whatever. 
if it works, it works and it's blessed and it's here. Mm. And, um, I think that probably guides a lot of the way I do things now. Mm-hmm. So, so we're going to back up just a little bit for a second. Right, I would love it. to know what you were like in middle school, okay. high school years. Right. What was Ryan yeah. about in school? Okay. So I, so when we moved here at uh, the end of 89, I was five and I had already started school. We started school a year earlier in the States. So I should have been going into the second grade. Um, at five. Yeah. I'd already finished our, for our first grade, basically. Okay. So Usually you do kindergarten at five yeah. and then six first grade. Right. But we do it, we do it all a year earlier. And so, and because I have a February birthday, that's already kind of weird. So it's about the five, about to turn six. Okay. So the compromise was there. They originally were saying, we'll put him with his age group in kindergarten. And my mom's like, he already knows how to read. And he knows how to do math. Like you're wasting his time. The accent was Aww. wrong. Yeah. So they put the compromises. They put me in first grade. So it's a year younger than everybody all through grade school. So in middle school, I was the second smallest boy in my class oh. until eighth grade. When I grew a foot, I got braces and glasses. Oh, why? How can we find photos of this oh, era of uh, your life? I think I've burned them all. I, we should it call was, your mom. Oh, it's it's a yeah. thing. It was rough. That was really rough. You grew a foot in a uh, year. Yeah. That's gotta be very uncomfortable for your body. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but you're distracted by having glasses on your face and getting used to that and your teeth. And braces. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So middle school, I think I learned how to exist in that nice middle class where like you know, all the cool kids and the popular kids and the sporty kids and you're friends with them and you mm-hmm. help them out on school projects, but you know, the weirdos are kind of where it's at. Yeah. And so you hang out with the drama kids and the art kids and the kids that were like listening to corn early on or whatever, you know, this is like mid nineties, you the skater kids yeah. and whatnot. And, did you um, have like half head shaved no, or, or an undercut? I did nothing. I did nothing bold. No under, no nothing. No, no, nothing bold. I, I did have frosted tips in like ninth grade, 10th grade. Why can't we find these photos? I don't know. Oh, they've got some. to be out there somewhere. Maybe, maybe. But I also have curly hair and you can't oh. do much with that. I mean, were you like, like Justin Timberlake, like with... See, the- I wish Justin Timberlake had been around in the capacity then, that then I needed you, right, him in middle right, school. Right. No, not the, not the crunchy ramen look. I never had quite like that, but it was But I mean, it was almost close. that with tips, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was close. All right. Yeah. Um... No, I mean, I think I I didn't have a lot of like anxious years. I feel like I got along well with most people. Were you into sports? Were you into like chess club? I did did track and field in Ah. middle school and then cross country in high school. Okay. Um, I was just okay. Um, I was in art club in both and was pretty good at that. And that ended up becoming my major in college. Right. Um, I did a, we had a Christian fellowship group in high school that I led. Um, so it was definitely more the arts. Oh, I did a couple plays in high school. Oh, all right. Yeah. Just to kind of try different things, I guess. It wasn't something that I was like, was it anything that your about. parents had said you have to be involved in something or was no. this all of your own volition? That was the, that was the really interesting thing. Like, I don't feel like our parents ever pushed us to anything. Um, 
I mean, they wanted us to have good grades. They wanted us to do things. Were you an academic? Yeah, I was good. Yeah. Uh, A's and B's. I mean, I wasn't. Right. Like straight A's. No, I wasn't. I wasn't one of those. Um, but, uh, but it came naturally to you to excel in, for the most part, I was not, math was not really my forte. Same. Um, history, art, Mm -hmm. English, pretty good at those things. Mm -hmm. Spanish. I was really good at, um, muy muy bien. bien. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it was neat. They kind of let us try things and, um, just in moderation. So I remember like fifth grade, we, we were brought into a room and it was full of instruments and this was to try out for band in middle school. I thought, thought, wow, that could actually be really cool. My friend had come back and he said, you got to play the trumpet. It's so cool. So I went in there and I asked to play the trumpet and the teacher kind of rolled his eyes because I assume every kid wants to play the trumpet or something. Oh. So I gave it one, two, got it wrong. And he goes, well, why don't we try you on the trombone? And it's like, well, okay. This is before the great ska uprising of 1997 yeah. when trombone kids were cool all of a yeah. sudden. Yeah. Um, so came back home and I was like, I kind of thinking about starting being in the band and I was in scouts at the time and mom said, okay, well, you can do one or the other. You've been in scouts ah. for several years. You can either continue with that or you can do band. So it was always kind of that, like it was always reasonable, whatever you want to do, like we're going to support you. will and it was nice. The, the town that we lived in Michigan, I mean, I could literally walk to school. It was a small town. So everything was walkable. So we didn't have the problems of like being taxied around to all these different things necessarily. Um, I did soccer growing up and I really liked that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just try to, and again, it was like part of my personality, like to be like decent at a lot of things, but you don't, I never got obsessive. Like right, this honed is, in on one. Yeah. I had the friends that played guitar for eight hours a day, you know, when they right. got home and just shredded and it was never going to be me. Right. Picked up the guitar in ninth grade and played that, you know, um, so, so you're kind of cruising. Yeah. In a way, I don't feel through. like I had too much struggle. And I think, I think a lot of it was being somebody who's, um, maybe adaptable to a fault sometimes, mm-hmm. um, to just kind of go along mm-hmm. and to do enough, uh, to not push myself too much to see what I'm really capable of. Um, but enough to feel confident and like I'm on the right track and I'm not going to get anybody yelling at me. <laughs> was that your kind of main objective is to kind of like not anger anyone? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it was, but it's so natural. It, I wouldn't even say it's an objective. It's not like I would wake up in the morning thinking about like, I must not disturb anybody. It was just, you right, just do you, it so yeah, naturally. Right, right. Like, you show up and you, okay, we're going to do school now. Okay. We're going to run. Cross country. I did get in trouble with a cross country teacher for not showing up a couple times. And that was really, but you were not like a rule breaker or like no, no big rebellious moments. No, no, really. All right. But even to the point where, you know, like time. Yeah. But the other, well, yeah, (laughs) but the other side of it too, where it's like, you know, in the ninth grade, some girl was smoking weed at the bus stop. She's like, do you want to try it? I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, it's like, Ah. Because it was more that like, I mean, it's kind of risky. Kind of, yeah, I guess so. Back in the nine, yeah, yeah, the yeah but it's still kind of go along to get along, you know. Ah. Um, so for the most part, yeah, I didn't, I didn't break the rules. I didn't advocate, like, look for them and then smash them down or right. anything. You just kind of went along. 
Well, that kind of leads us into our next topic, which yeah. is one of my favorites. And mm-hmm. I'm so excited to have you on to chat about the Enneagram because I've known, I've known you for a couple of years now to be pretty involved in, I think, digging in and, yeah. and learning and sharing and all the things. So I've been in at least one, if not more of your offerings on the Enneagram. Yeah. Um, so... It's been something that's been pretty like instrumental in my life and has really given a lot of language to a lot of things and understanding how and why. And I think it's, yeah, I think it is so fascinating. Of course, like the family of origin that we're placed in Mm -hmm. and kind of how that shapes us. And like you said, like you really grew up in a certain, um, comfortability of the ways that your family did things, the ways that you understood church, the ways that you kind of lived your life and then feeling that like, Oh, I know this, right. This is just like home to me. Um, that paired with just like the DNA that I think that we're innately created with, I think is super fascinating because then we as adults get to shape more of our own story as to like how and why we want to, interpret the world and what we want to do in the world and what is important to us and how we understand our, our own selves in a space, how mm-hmm. other people interpret us. And then also for me having compassion on other people that I don't understand. And so a lot of my life, I felt like I don't understand why I'm this way. Mm. And so many people are like vastly different Probably because you're one of the rarest jewels on the Enneagram. Probably. Female eight. Female eight. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me, where can I begin? Yeah. Um, so I would love if one, if you would just take us through a real quick brief overview okay. of the nine different paths of the Enneagram mm-hmm. and then we'll dig into some more stuff. Okay. Yeah. After that. So the 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 you know the brief summary is that it is a personality typing system but where a lot of systems tend to be um kind of more rigid and defined by your actions and behavior mm-hmm. the enneagram goes a level deeper into the way that you think um and the way you kind of intuit like you were saying like how you interpret the world and then like the energy you put back out into it. Mm -hmm. So it naturally becomes a little bit more fluid. So it's a bit more complex than some others Mm -hmm. in that. But once you kind of latch on, you can kind of add on these layers of understanding as you're going. So I think it has real long. There's so many. I'm still uncovering some. I'm still learning so much. And there's been a lot of times, even in my own journey where I've had to back up where Mm -hmm. it's like, I got in over my head. I'm like, okay, let's go back to the beginning. Do Mm. I have this? I got this down. Okay. This thing. Okay. Um, and it, it makes a lot of sense because it, I think it speaks to the commonality of human beings actually to say we're wired in such a way that when our, you know, our DNA is saying this and our family of origin kind of nurture says this, you know, we're somewhere, most experts still say we are one part nature, one part nurture, Mm -hmm. and perhaps one part, our own choices, Mm. um, that we all still have those common things. So it's almost kind of like a domino effect, you know, when you Mm. start from that singular motivation in life and you start to build onto that. And that's one of the things that I've really loved about the Enneagram. And so it basically, um, it boils down, here's these nine ways of being in the world. I like to say, I like to think of it in terms of love, especially because of what I do for a living. And, um, it's, it's nine interpretations of what love is and how do you get it? 
Ah. Um, Yeah. So the common, the common human thread is Mm -hmm. that our experience and we we, want to be loved. We all want to be loved. We speak about this in spiritual terms. We also look at it through childhood development terms that Mm -hmm. your first experiences in postnatal life are the trauma of separation Hmm. that you experience that you and your mom are not the same. That I and thou relationship is all of a sudden. Spoiler alert: We are definitely not. The same. Oh well, but when you were in vitro, you th- you this sure. was it's, this, you experienced this full complete yeah. oneness, and then you experience mother as other, and then you experience this other thing called father who just keeps saying no and taking mother away from you. Like being a child is very traumatic. Like it is. your first several years, and then you learn. Um, um, Object impermanence, you know, when the ball mm-hmm. rolls under the couch, like it, it disappears, disappears and that's terrible. Right. And then all of a sudden it's there again, you know? So, um, we very rapidly learn that we don't get everything we need in life that we would define mm-hmm. as love, but mm-hmm. we each give love a slightly different flavor of what we're missing. And then we compensate. And so our personality is developed from two, three, four, five years old ish in that window, mm-hmm. your personality manifests as a way for you to compensate and try to get the thing you desire most, which is love, but you might call it by a different name later on. Okay. So as you may know, or may not know at all, cocktails are kind of my thing. At the end of a long day, or any day really, crafting a drink, whether it's simple or more complex, I really look forward to a delicious cocktail. Plus it makes all conversations better. Tito's Handmade Vodka is always a go-to for me. It's the perfect thing to have on hand to make just about any cocktail. That is what I love about Tito's. It's so versatile. Anything from a Moscow mule to an elderflower martini to a white Russian. Plus, Tito's Handmade Vodka has won a million awards, but for real. It's been distilled six times and won the SF World Spirit Championship. So the next time you are looking for an incredibly drinkable cocktail, pick up some Tito's Handmade Vodka. Plus, you should head over to titosvodka.com to read up more about their story and pick up some delightful recipes. So there's nine types. So yeah, I'll run through them really quick. Um, Type one is Mm -hmm. called the reformer. Um, Some people call it the perfectionist. Mm -hmm. I don't care for that term. And I know a lot of ones don't. Right. It's the need. Who wants to be a perfectionist? Well, yeah. And and I think, I think what it comes from is when ones are unhealthy, they can be perfectionists, Mm -hmm. but it's, it it is the need to be perfect and to perfect the world. And so ones are always looking for how things could be better, how they could be improved. They tend to be a bit more rule followers, but they Mm -hmm. want the structure. They want the explanations they want. And then they want to make those things even Very black and white. They can tend to be very black and white thinkers. Absolutely. Um, And they're instinctual people. So eights, nines, and ones are in the gut triad. So we, that's us too. Yep. We, we interpret the world through our instincts and anger is our primary Mm -hmm. emotion, but it manifests differently. differently. So for ones, it's resentment. Because ones get angry that the world isn't the way it should be. Should is a huge word for ones, but they also tell themselves, I'm not allowed to be angry um, because that's not presentable. And mm-hmm. so they internalize and it becomes resentment. Mm-hmm. Um, twos are called the helpers, the givers, or the befrienders. And this is entering into the heart triad, two, three, four. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are people who primarily interpret the world through their their heart, through their emotions. So their feelings first people. 
twos um, have this innate desire to be loved mm-hmm. through being generous. And um, they give and they give and they give with this unexpected, unspoken expectation for return on investment. Mm-hmm. So they're really big on mm-hmm. feeling other people's feelings and they just have a sixth sense to know what other people need, but they very often don't know what they need, what themselves. They, need themselves. they can't ask that question. Mm-hmm. And they're actually afraid to, sure. because the, the, the lie is like, if I show weakness, then people won't love me. Mm-hmm. And so they very much are the type that try to earn love through being, being there, being a good friend, yeah. being a giver, being generous. Being and they burn themselves people. out a lot right. of times. Uh, the next one would be three. It's called the achiever or the performer. Um, so one of my brothers is one of these, but he's an introverted three, which is interesting. We were just talking about countertypes. Countertypes. Yeah. That, would, that, would, that is very interesting. Um, so these are people that mm-hmm. need to um, achieve in order to be admired. So if twos want to be, love looks like adoration, like you're, you're lovable. For threes, it's you're admirable. And it's usually because of your achievements. You're up here. You've you're, placed right. yourself on a pedestal. Yes. You're very performance you, oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, Goal driven. Yes. Yeah. Success equals is love. Everything. So this is the total classic, like, you know, uh, Fortune 500 CEO who just is crushing it every day. Like that kind of image. Um, it is fascinating, though, how... Like there's no, there's no impetus of wanting to put people in a box mm-hmm. within this yes. and especially fours. Good Lord. <laughs> right. They don't want to be in any, yeah. but the places that you find people mm-hmm. within, I think these different pathways is very interesting yeah. and helpful to understand how different people have gotten to different places. Right. Through the through the lens of like, oh, I see you now. I yeah, see you yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. better now. Absolutely. Through- and I think one of the one of the helpful little explanations for that, you know, because some people bucket the idea that there's only nine types, mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, if you if you go to Home Depot or Lowe's and you're looking at swatches of paint, and you you want to paint your wall blue, there's like four hundred types of blue, <laughs> and that's really what it's like. It, yes, there are nine primary types. Um, but we are all, there's an infinite amount of shades within that type. Mm -hmm. And one of the teachers that I really appreciate, Suzanne Stabile, she says, um, the Enneagram doesn't work, but it is helpful. And I think that speaks to what you're saying as well. It's like, don't think of it as like you're being put into a box and that's just it. And and you have to look this way, but it'll give you enough of a structure to find something to latch onto. And then you start to fill it in yourself. So maybe you don't look like that stereotype of each personality, But if you're really honest with yourself and you kind of go beneath the facade, Mm -hmm. the mask, uh, beneath the behaviors, uh, and really find the the mechanics underneath and you'll find some commonality. And I don't know, I'm sure you have too. Like for me, when we've introduced this in our community, I've met people who are nines that on the surface that have been like, we have no, we have nothing in common Mm -hmm. at all. And then you start talking, you're like, oh my goodness. Ooh, and I'm, the underlying yeah. like motivators and like you, you start seeing the reasons why people do things and that manifest in different ways. Yeah. Right. Like, um, but in, in even within, <clears throat> like, as you, as I have learned, like we were talking about, there's so many 
kind of subsets within the Enneagram, like yes. the harmony triads and like the past, present, future mm-hmm. relationship to time. Subtypes, and so like yeah. subtypes, like as you are getting into it, like we are, we are all individuals, right? We're, right. we are all, we are all nine types. There's no like, yes. right. There's a little bit of in, integrated into everyone, but I think it's, I think it is helpful to identify with one because I think that that helps to like see where the, where the, the energy is coming from and Mm -hmm. like, right. We're all seeking love. So we're all trying to get it in kind of one of these nine ways. But then from there, you're really, I think like stacking your own personality in these other different, in the other different ways of like learning about like, Oh yeah. Well, I learned that as a kid or like, yeah, I relate this way. And like, even as an eight, you might be over here and I might be like way over here. Yeah, exactly. But we're all very like, it, like it is not a box. It's just like a tool for learning. And and I, I don't know about you, but one thing that I found really interesting is people will get into Enneagram and they'll become kind of obsessive and it becomes a party trick and it becomes in all of their language, like, well, I'm an eight, so blah, blah, blah. And, and then yeah. they do the, 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 the worst thing you do go, well, you're just, that was so seven of you to do that, you yeah. know? And, and that kind of thing is fun for like, I don't know, six months. And then you just burn out. And then is there's an opportunity to go, oh, okay, but seriously though, what do you want to do with this new information? Because mm-hmm. knowledge is not the same thing as transformation. Right. So you, you have language for how you operate. Great. Are you going to continue to use that as an excuse for how you treat people? Mm-hmm. Or are you actually going to use it as a vehicle to become more compassionate to yourself yeah. and others? Mm-hmm. And I think you start to leave behind, if you do it right, you leave behind all of that really surfacey you know, kind of all of the Instagram memes, which I, you know, appreciate when people send me, (laughs) but it becomes so much of a stereotype. It's like, okay, but really though, who are you? And it can help you to answer that question or it can prevent you from answering that question, Sure, but that's up to you. Give you language or it can just give you blinders almost mm-hmm. like, Oh, I see you. You're a four, blah, yeah. blah. You're only this. Right. You're not only this. No one is only one yep. number. Yep. Okay. I digress. Okay. So we were wrapping up three. Oh yes. Okay. So yes. threes. Um, so where this is the interesting thing is where twos feel other people's feelings. Threes are, um, asleep to their own feelings. <laughs> like they, they take the world in through their heart, but they don't have any time to actually process their emotions because that can also be equated to weakness. And so they put it aside with this idea of like, I'll come back to it later. Mm-hmm. Of course they never do because mm-hmm. the calendars are full because they're on to the next thing they've got to accomplish and they've got to achieve. Um, so they are really good about walking into a room and scanning the room and going, who do I need to be for these people to they can transform, me, like me? Yeah. Oh which my is gosh. A scary. Which can be a, re- yeah, it can be a really great thing, but yep. it can be really scary. Um, um, so they, they could tend to be very deceitful, but the ultimate tragedies, they can be very deceitful of themselves because they convince themselves that they are who they think that they are in that. Mm. Um, but when threes are healthy, they are amazing visionaries mm-hmm. and leaders. leaders. They think about all of us. They take us where and we're going. And they can like get shit done. They really can. Yeah. <sighs> Which we, we need somebody to mm-hmm. <laughs> take that onus. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so the last number in the heart triad is a four, mm-hmm. um, which is sometimes called the individualist or the, the romantic artist. or the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to go with individualist. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of those there, I think there are a lot of people who have artistic talents or vocations that are fours, but it's not across the board. Sure. So I find that a lot of times for some, like 
someone's an amazing painter or musician, like, oh my gosh, it must be a four. It's like, oh no, actually, yeah, they're human. Right. Um, so I like individualist for that reason. So if twos feel other people's feelings, threes <laughs> fall asleep to their own feelings, fours embody Body. their feelings yep. and blow their feelings out mm. of proportion. Um, because their primary motivation in the world um is I think it's really to be seen and to be known, but the way they think that is, is to be unique. So if I can find the thing that sets me apart, mm-hmm. then I'll be, people will see me and they'll you know, love me yeah. and they can become compulsive and trying to stand apart. Everybody's going left. They're going right. Everybody's going right. They're going left. Um, and so uh, you, you know, you're in a relationship with a four if it's constant push and pull where mm-hmm. you're pressing in after them and they're pulling away from you because they want to, because they, they get, set themselves apart. Yes, exactly. They get stuck in this spectrum between belonging and individuality. And the more you belong, the less you're an individual. And mm-hmm. the more you're an individual, the less you belong. And so they're constantly in crisis, moving back and forth between That's those a two. Good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, I think we, I think we all exist on that spectrum somewhere, sure. but for them, they're kind of running back and forth because more than anything force want to belong, but they can't sacrifice individuality in order to do it. Oh, that's a good way. To yeah. So, um, they are very aware of their own feelings. Um, everything means something more than it is. I remember in 11th grade, uh, this is like a non force story, but in 11th grade, we were reading, um, the Scarlet letter mm-hmm. in this book. And we were talking about the symbolism of color and our teacher was going on about this color. What does this mean? Usually mean, and my friend Kai, she was, she stands up and she goes, you know what? Sometimes black is just black. And immediately the teacher goes, <laughs> no, black is never just black. And it was this very like four moment, like things are never just what they are. They always have to have this bigger, deeper meaning. The cool thing is that fours lead us to beauty in the ways yeah. that a lot of us wouldn't notice. But, but the, the, the sticking point. Mm-hmm. own emotions. Yes. Yeah. But the sticking point can sometimes be that they make symbolic things that aren't. And the mundane is terrifying to force mm-hmm. the normal everydayness of life for an unhealthy four is just the bane of their existence. Mm-hmm. Um, so they yeah, definitely struggle with that. Yeah. Um, so over the next one is into the uh, thinking triad or the mind triad. These are fives, sixes, and sevens. Mm-hmm. And so these are people. So twos, threes, and fours taking the world in through the heart. Shame mm. is the primary emotion. I'm not okay the way that I am. So here's three I'm ways for me to compensate. Yeah. Five, six, and seven, it's they're thinking their way through the world. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're thinking ways of solving the problem of chaos in the world that elicits fear. Mm. Fear is their dominant emotion. I read somewhere recently that they didn't, and it was the first time because I had always thought fear, shame, and anger, but they mm-hmm. were saying it was um, anxiety. Yeah, I could see that as a, as a specific version of fear. Uh-huh. Yeah. I would anxiety. I tend to think is like a, a present fear of future possibility. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would, I would bring that in. Right. I think fear speaks to a really, because despair, I would say is also a form of fear, mm-hmm. you know, like anxiety is the fear tomorrow won't come. Despair, despair is the fear that tomorrow will be exactly like today, you know? Right. So yeah. So these people, it's like, how do I, create a mental understanding of the world to hold chaos at, at arm's bay. length. At mm-hmm. Bay. Mm-hmm. So fives are called the observer or the investigator. Mm-hmm. Um, and their solution is uh, that knowledge equals power. 
And if I can understand everything, then I can control it. Mm -hmm. The patron saint of fives would be Sherlock Holmes. Who? Sherlock Holmes. Oh, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, 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 yeah. You said Showa. No. Showa Holmes. Um, Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. So did you watch the recent BBC one with um, Benedict Cumberbatch? Perfect example. Obviously, He's high-functioning sociopath. Like, he holds everybody in arms base constantly like blowing up his own relationships, mm-hmm. you know, for being so logical. So it's kind of like that, that, that blown out version, but fives. Um, yeah. Can they retreat if I can, their mental they're, they're withdrawing. If with I can understand the world. And power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is my power knowledge. Yes. And a lot of times what fives will do is they're presented with something new. They back up and I'm going to think it first mm-hmm. and then I will re-engage. Mm-hmm. And that's a really great way to know. And what fives do is they allocate their energy, the second lowest energy type um, of all of the fours is lowest. Nines. Nines is the lowest, right? Nines yeah, yeah. Lowest. Yep. Right. And fives say, "Here's my tank of energy for the day," and they allocate it like for all of their energy for work, for mm-hmm. relationships, and so on. And so they hate when things are spontaneous that they didn't plan for because it's going to take from them more than what they thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so they tend to be very curious people. You often find them on the outskirts of new arenas of knowledge. So they're not content with the status quo. So mm-hmm. a lot of people like like Bill Gates would be a great example of like people who are, are intellectually brilliant and they're always looking for the new frontiers mm-hmm. of e- exploration. And sometimes they can get the best of them that they spend so much time thinking that they don't do. Act on mm-hmm. things. Yes. yes. And they tend to be... Uh, emotionally repressed too. Mm-hmm. Um, sixes called the loyalist or the loyal skeptic. And um, their way of de- dealing with uh, f- chaos and fears through pessimism. And they think they're being realists, mm-hmm. but they're not. Um, there's probably more sixes in the world than any other and type, they, yeah. which. Uh, and there's a case for two different types of sixes. Yes. Yeah. So there's two is, types. There's phobic. I feel like six is the one that I don't understand the most. Okay. Yeah. Well, and so, I don't relate to them. Right? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Absolutely. As mm-hmm. an eight. So six is the, the core motivator in life is the world is an unsafe place. Yeah. Protection. Yeah. And I've got to do what I need, can need to do. And so they tend to think in terms of who's got the power, who's got the authority, mm-hmm. who's going to keep me safe. Mm-hmm. And there are two subtypes of phobic six is someone who very quickly latches on to authority Contraphobic six is someone who might appear like an eight to be pretty aggressive and to try to poke holes in authority, mm-hmm. but it's saying, are you trustworthy? Whereas an eight, it's going, do you actually deserve to be in control of this thing? <laughs> Cause I don't think you do. Cause I think I am. Um, but phobic and contraphobic sixes and most sixes will actually oscillate between those two. You might have a tendency towards one, hmm. but it's a, it's fluid. Um, they are saying, am I safe? And so sixes tend to think in groupthink. They think about us and we and what's best for all of us. Sure. So they're really big on questions because they're all, and they're going to think of questions that nobody else does Mm -hmm. because they've already thought five moves ahead to say, is this going to fall apart? You know that, um, there was a book and then it's like a card game. It's like the ultimate guide to worst case scenarios, Mm -mm. like what to do if you're uh, stuck on a mountain and there's a bear attack. Or like, if you get your head stuck in a beehive, you've never seen this. No, it's like in novelty shops. Sure. Um, Sixes live that out. Like they walk Mm. in, they know where the exits are. Mm. They are always thinking of worst case scenarios. Like what if, um, and you can imagine if you read the news, this is not a good time to be a six. Mm -hmm. There's so much anxiety and fear in the world right now anyway. 
Um, but healthy sixes are actually the ones that are best positioned to maneuver us through it because they know a thing or two about anxiety. And so they have a tendency and because they care about us, the tribe, they're thinking, they're in, thinking what, what's best yeah. for the common good. Um, seven's the last one in the, in the thinking triad. And so fives, it's like, if I can control the world through understanding it, I hold it arm's length. Sixes are pessimists who think they're realists. Sevens are optimists. Mm-hmm. So a seven's primary thought process is, um, it's all about positivity and adventure. And what they're doing is they're avoiding what I might call the dark emotions. Um, avoiding pain pe- and all pain, costs. fear, anxiety, yeah. boredom, mm-hmm. uh, whatever I can do to, uh, to adventure my way out of those things. And so they're the eternal optimists. And that's interesting because optimism is a logical structure to explain things away. A lot of times people think that sevens are very emotional people, but they're guided actually by this logical thinking that they have Hmm. of always finding the silver lining of always turning things around. Yeah. And it's problematic because we actually appreciate that in our culture because our culture doesn't do grief and despair very well. No. So sevens come along and sit in pain. Oh no. No, not at all. If we were shaped by threes, we're, we're fueled by sevens. Right. Um, but the problem is that sevens only tend to live out of this half range of emotion and they're always secretly trying to avoid those dark emotions. Um, so when they're all unhealthy, unfortunately, sevens can become really aggressive and insistent upon not having to face anything uncomfortable or anything uncomfortable. Um, they have a hard time with commitment and seeing things through. They get bored in relationships very quick. They get bored with community. They get bored with their majors in college. They get bored with their jobs. Always on to the next thing. And they always have a plan and there's always the next stepping stone. Mm -hmm. Um, But they tend to skip across the surface of life. And even talking to a lot of sevens, they said that the biggest pain that they have is that people tend to think that they're shallow. Um, But because they kind of have a tendency when they're unhealthy to live a shallow mm-hmm. life that just skips along the surface and doesn't get that harder and depth that comes through facing pain. Um, when they're healthy, they are the funnest. They're so fun. They're brilliant. They're very yeah. clever. Um, they bring joy to they the bring world. Joy. It's their, it's their primary gift to the yeah. world. Yeah. Um, they can make really great leaders and ideators, mm-hmm. um, kind of incubators, you know, um, so yeah, so that's the thinking triad yes. and then on to eights. Woo-hoo. Do you want me to talk about eights or do you want to yes. talk about eights? Okay. Yeah. And you can just tell me when I'm wrong. I'll, ch- no, <laughs> I'll chime in if I need to, but yeah, or I want to hear what your take on it okay. is. Um, here we go. <laughs> so, um, so eights were moving into the body triad or the mm-hmm. gut triad. Mm-hmm. And, um, these are people who intuit their way through the world through instinct. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've always had a hard time teaching this, I think it's hard to differentiate between body and heart because we use the word feeling and we have feelings in our heart and then we have feelings in our gut. Yeah. That's why I like instinct or intuition because Mm -hmm. it's somewhere else other than a feeling. I think this has that, like learning that and learning about anger, I Mm -hmm. think was very uh, eye opening for me. Um, because I would always be like, I don't know why I did this. Like, I just mm. feel it. Like, this yeah. is just, and I've obviously worked in events for 15 years and, and talk, we'll talk about the time relationship to time just being, um, like, yeah. Understanding that I kind of operate in the present. So like yeah. right now 
I have to make a decision. We have to, we have to move, we have to go. And the instinct is just, sometimes it's like not rational or it's not like, I also don't live, um, I'm not ruled by my my emotions. So it's not like, am I angry about this right now? It's like, this has to be done right now. So like we have to do this and then we have to keep moving. Right. Um, so that, yeah, that, that was very, I think, transformational for me to Mm -hmm. kind of like, so just to kind of, to pull them apart, because I think our, the heart tends to be about uh, our relationship to other people. The mind tends to be our relationship to chaos. And -hmm. I think for us in the body triad, it tends to be our relationship to our environment. Okay. So anger stirs up because there's an irreconcilable Mm -hmm. difference in the environment, whether that's people or literally the environment or the structure of the, whatever we feel it intuitively there. Like it, like I almost imagine it, like it comes through the ground up into your body and it sits in your stomach, you know? Hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think of when I think of intuition. And then we respond out of that place. Mm -hmm. Um, so eights it's, um, the need, um, it's the need to be against Mm -hmm. and against what it's like anything, anything, (laughs) Uh, whatever they're presented eights more than any other type are going to be the ones to question status quo. Mm -hmm. And that's where you tend to find the difference between eights and contraphobic sixes is sixes are very afraid people. But the motivators are are motivated. I want to trust this thing. And eights could burn it all down. Yeah. So usually the, the, the story goes that little eights were at one point vulnerable and that vulnerability was taken advantage of. Hmm. And they said, never again, will I be weak? Mm -hmm. And they look around and go, who's got the power and Mm -hmm. what are they doing and how are they acting? And that's how I'm going to protect myself. How do I align myself? Yeah. Yeah. So all eights walk around with this armor, uh, this impregnable armor on to protect that inner child from ever getting hurt again. Hmm. And so eights are probably the most aggressive type on the, on the Enneagram but there can be counter types. There can be counter types. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, they are always, again, kind of like that controversial six, they're questioning the status quo, mm-hmm. but more to shake up the environment. Like eights when they're unhealthy, especially were are happy to just lob a grenade into the middle of a thing mm-hmm. just to watch, just, yeah, burn it down. just to question it yeah. or just to stir up conflict. Um, because the eights to be all, argumentative for argument's sake. Yes. Right. Exactly. And that's intimacy. This is the thing that took me for, so long. For, oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> we hit a nerve. Yes. So, well, that is not me. Right. Okay. So like, I think like digging into this, like I know other eights that enjoy debating yeah. or I mean, like even within my family, like mm. I don't like to, I don't like to like have an argument or like some people in my family enjoy that kind of like back and forth dialogue. Okay. And I, I don't, that gives me stress. Mm. Um, and so I know some other eights that are maybe more, not like textbook eights, but a standard or whatever, whatever. That, yeah. The stereotype, the stereotype yeah, of eight is just to say, I want to stir this up because I can. Yeah. And because I really love to see people just like get in it and mm-hmm. get at it. And I have the opposite. Wow of that. Like, now do you think that has anything to do with being a female eight? Because eights anyway, are eights and fours are the most understood types, 
but then Un- misunderstood, misunderstood, misunderstood. And I would say yeah. female eights sure. and male twos are the most misunderstood when it comes to gender because mm. it would go against the gender norms. Like a male two being sure very nurturing, other centered, yeah. heartfelt kind of person mm-hmm. isn't what we would normally associate with maleness. But being being aggressive and um, very like quick and and like not just going along with what things are supposed to be would mm-hmm. be kind of contrary to stereotypes of femininity. Do you like, do you think that plays into maybe even you not being that stereotypical eight? Um, I don't think so as much. I think that I can very much present a case for doing something that is against the culture, like the okay. normal. Uh-huh. Um, and so I feel like I don't have to go along with what everyone else yeah. is doing like that. I feel very confident in that. Okay. Um, I don't have any regard or any enjoyment about being argumentative for argument's sake. Okay. So if I present a case, I'm going to present it to you. Like I can say, this is why this is going to be good. And it's very different than maybe you would see it in the normal realm, Mm -hmm. but I can, I can stand by my idea and I can push it through. So sometimes people are like, oh no, I don't want to partner with you on this. Well, let me show you how okay. this is your yeah, demographic. Yeah, this yeah. is how it's going to benefit you. And then they come around and they eventually do it. But I, I push back. And so right. I can, I can say, I can hear your no and, and it takes energy from me. It exhausts me, but I can still go back through and say, um, here's why I want you to do something that might not be normal to you. Mm. Do but I have never, um, but also, so I'm an eight wing nine. Okay. So I, as I'm growing older, I'm realizing how much, how much more on the borderline of that I am because right. I have always felt like the peacemaker. So within my family, within social Interesting. S- settings, yeah. um, with, with friends, I'm always trying to mend things. And so there's no part of me that, um, wants to like stir stuff up or, or to be, there's no romance in an argument for me versus other people that I know that we know that just say, I want to argue with you. How about in the problem solving things? You use like that work example where it's like, here's this thing and maybe there's a normal way of doing it or maybe there's not. And like, are you really passionate about like, we're going to fit, we're going to figure it out and we're all going to get on board. And like, like, is there like, I don't even like saying aggression. Like, do you have an assertiveness that maybe isn't face to face conflict, but it's mm-hmm. conflict with the task. Does that make sense? Like Mm-mm. we're going to overcome this problem or like that you're saying, like, I'm going to convince you that the way that I'm thinking we should do this is actually the best like way to do it. Like, do you, do you see that in any way as being like conflict or like that? Does that bring you life? Um, I think I do it because I have to do it. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you enjoy I, it? No. Okay. Mm-mm. I don't enjoy conflict. Okay. Yeah. So I think that, I think I feel like I wrestle a lot and that's something that I'm always trying to figure out within myself because like, I feel like I can be against and I feel very confident against like presenting things that are new and different and mm-hmm. like helping people to see that. Yeah. Um, and then also wanting to keep everybody happy. Mm. So I can definitely 
have the capacity to push back against something, but it, it's, I don't try to do it in an argumentative way. Right, right. I'm trying to do it in a way of you trying to be happy, me trying to be happy with the situation. And sometimes, and sometimes, um, yeah, I mean, I've learned so much, I think in the past few years, like there's things that I wish that I would have known years ago mm. about conflict. Yeah. Conflict resolution or like how to present myself to somebody who doesn't view their role or my role, or they don't, we don't, we're not coming at it from different angles. Like we're, we're coming at it from very different motivations. Yeah. And so me, I can only see in my head, like, don't you understand why this is a problem? And they're like, what's the problem? And I'm like, don't you understand why this is a problem? But I also <laughs> like, don't, I have always wrestled about like, yeah, how do I navigate that relationally? Okay. And, um, I have a lot of anger, but I, like, I didn't grow up in a family that like yells at one another or is emotive in that right. way. Right. And so how do I get the things that I want accomplished? And so I keep a lot of that anger inside. Mm. And so yeah. I'm always battling it's there. Yeah. Right. And I'm try try not to be passive aggressive. Right. And so it's always trying to figure out how, how to navigate that. Yeah, well, that's interesting. What was, I mean, coming out of that question from a different angle, like what was intimacy like for you at 20? At 20? Yeah. Like In what friendship, romance, working relationships, like what, when you felt connected to somebody, what were the ingredients that made that possible? That's a great question. I'm trying to think of where I was at 20. I was, I think I had just moved to, or, I had just moved to Orlando because I moved to Orlando in 2000. Okay. So I've been here for 20 years. Um, at 20, 20 was a pretty like chaotic time because mm. I was just moving here. I knew nobody. So I was trying to even think of what I, yeah, late, late 20, I lived in Hawaii and I did, um, uh, youth with a mission. Yeah. Yep. I did. I did a second round and I lived there for six months. Um, yeah. So I was trying to navigate that like a whole new subset of the world. I was, yeah, really trying to figure myself out like yeah. what I wanted to do with my, I had some friends at, at YOM and then I got back and I was like, yeah, I try to try, like, I, I hardly knew anybody. So mm -hmm. it was living with my family in a not great, um, <laughs> the family dynamic was probably pretty okay, but we all seven of us lived in this apartment in East Orlando and it was horrible. So it was like a pretty like hard time. Mm. That's 20. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, th I ask because a lot of times when you're trying to figure out your type and like you're at 20, you know, you're generally far enough removed from your family of origin that if you're, if your personality type is very suggestible, uh, you might mistype when you're a kid cause you're just going on what your parents are saying and doing. And then when you get out on your own, you start to just naturally live out of your own personality. Mm -hmm. But at 20, you tend to be a bit of a blunt object and you're not really, you haven't found the subtleties and the nuances of like how to be responsible with your own personality. So mm -hmm. if you can, sometimes when you can think back to when you were 20 and go, how did I do that? Like, 
how did I do romantic relationship or how did I, how do I operate in this jobs environment? You know, you can kind of get to those core things, mm. which is really interesting because it's hard, you know, especially, um, when you're a mature adult, because you've worked through a lot of things, mm-hmm. you know, like you're, you're saying, like coming to terms with this nine wing, which rounds out a lot of those like core eight stereotypical tendencies mm-hmm. anyway, you know, I think that I've always been, um, a placator. Okay. And then I think learning more about myself, I was like, Oh, but really my, so like my dad was an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and then like his dad was an entrepreneur. And then like my mom's dad worked in his, his family business. Wow. Um, and so kind of realizing as far as like who I wanted to be in the world was somebody of, of my own or yeah, like somebody that sure. was bringing something like new. Cause that has kind of what was like, I had seen. Yeah. That would be a very eight. Right. Tendency. And so I, I saw, so my dad was a seven, mm-hmm. I think wing eight, but he, uh, yeah, he had just had so much life and was just all over the place mm. and there was good and, and bad things in that. But I think that I, I learned from my family of origin of just like, yeah, you, you don't have to get like a nine to five. Like you don't have to go out and like earn your 401k and then you retire and then you die. It was like, you can do whatever you want. Like we want you to be happy and healthy. And I mean, they didn't have everything exactly perfect by any means, but I was kind of modeled on the sense of like, you can, you can be out of the box and that's okay. You know, there was no expectation there. Which is, especially as a woman's kind of cool because I feel like our generation is like the first one that's like, that really starts sure. to shift a little bit more. Yeah. Now I think it'd be a given if you go to a girl and go, you can be whatever you want. She'd be like, Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. But like if you, but like 20 years ago, it's like, yes, right. I think so. Can I though? Can you, <laughs> are you going to support yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Just to have something just, to fall back on. But that's why I had to get an ed- education degree, not a straight art degree. You know, yeah. just, just something always to fall back on. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of figured out, even though I was trying to always navigate within my family and then within mm-hmm. social settings, um, cause I, we moved around like as I was a kid, right? Yeah. So new schools, you're all, I'm always trying to like, okay, now where am I? Now I have to navigate a whole new subset of people. Right. Um, but the internal motivation was like, I want to do something different mm. and it doesn't have to be what the world tells me that I am going to be or have right. to be. I can do something, um, outside the box. Yeah. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So yeah. then, yeah. So we can see, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that's worth noting about nut eights. Um, Eights, I think I'd said they're most, the most aggressive, most aggressive. stereotypically, mm-hmm. which means that eights can have a tendency to steamroll people at the mm-hmm. expense of the project goal. or the goal. Um, but I think when eights be, like the path for eights to health is vulnerability and learning the strength of weakness. I'm sorry. What? Yeah. <laughs> but like, I didn't sign up for that. Right. Right. None of us did. Right. Um, but just learning like that is the path because you know, the, again, you know, we were talking about like the, the stereotype of the eight intimacy is, is in like conflict can be mm-hmm. intimate. And for the most, the rest of us, like we just don't understand that. And we, yeah. we, we work with an eight that you and I both know. And mm-hmm. like, I could not fathom understand why this would be, why you feel like why are you you're fighting good, on every, you're in good relation or like, I feel like I'm, 
in good relationship with you, but you, right. all you want to do is argue. Right. 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 It doesn't like, I, cause I would always presume benefit of the doubt would be a standard thing. And it's like, why do I have to keep going through this? But then even, and it was actually before I did Enneagram stuff sure. and figuring out that I like, Oh, the this romance is how you build a relationship. In, like, and it's yeah. like, okay, I can, I can play that game if I, if I know it's going to give me what I want as well, which is like relationship. Right. So I can put the hat on, but it's just not natural for me. So, so it brings me to the, my number. Yes. Nine. So, so, uh, we've got this kind of gut instinct, intuiting the environment thing to combat anger. Eights tend to use anger as a fuel. It gets them going. They do the thing. It burns off clean. Mm -hmm. Ones, as I said, um, are angry, but they're not allowed to be angry because they're good boys or good girls. So they stuff the anger and it becomes resentment. Mm -hmm. Um, nines, uh, have experience anger, but then fall asleep to it because it's just too much conflict. And so for nines, the, the primary motivation is to avoid, um, mostly conflict, conflict and all the different yeah. interpretations, but like, which is similar to seven, but seven, it's a high energy avoidance. Like let's, let's escape it for nines. It's like, let's just fall asleep to that. And what's happening is that peace is the primary desire for nines. And we're, it, we're the lowest type and we're the lowest energy type mm -hmm. more so than fives, because we're fighting that battle on two fronts. We're trying to maintain a sense of internal peace within ourselves, between our heart and our mind and mm -hmm. our body. But then we're trying to maintain an exterior piece, which mm -hmm. is between us and our relationships and the rest of the world. And so we're always managing everything on two fronts, which is why we have such low energy. We don't allocate it like fives do. Nines, a lot of times we run out of energy without realizing it. That mm. we just, oh, oh my gosh, it happened again. Right. So that frequently happens to me. When I was, uh, it was my sophomore year in college, um, I think it was like 18 or 19, I broke out in hives, like all over the center of my body, like all over on top of my head. And I went to the ER and they hooked me up to like the steroids pumped through my body to kind of calm down my system. And I was like, what is that? Like allergic reaction or something? And they said, no, you're stressed. And I said, no, I'm not. I said, no, <laughs> you're, you're stressed. I'm like, I, I your body fine. It's like, you are so, yes, you are so stressed. Literally in stress. Your body is telling you. And I was so disconnected from myself that I wasn't acknowledging that until my body started to shut down. And it's like pretty indicative of being, did you like, did those things follow? Did you follow? Like, were the things in your life that were bringing you stress that you just I think didn't, it, nothing, didn't want to acknowledge nothing it? outside of the ordinary. Huh. I was just in um, a pretty intensive program at school and you know, things are still pretty new in your, your, your sophomore year in college. I li lived in one room with, three dudes sharing one little tiny bedroom, you know, it's just college stuff. Right. Um, but nothing, yeah, nothing extraordinary, you know, other than like the existential. But you weren't just like connecting of, your body to your, to yeah, your heart and brain. Just doing it. Just going on. Just keep going. All keep right. going. Keep swimming. Yeah. All right. And, um, so that would be pretty indicative of nines. Um, nines are called the crown of the Enneagram because we have a tendency to be able to see through the eyes of every other type mm -hmm. except for our own. Hmm. Um, so we, you know, we'll go along and go, Oh yeah, I sound like a one. Oh yeah. I kind of two sounds a lot like me or I see some three tendencies and going all the way through and you come to nine and you just go, well, I don't know, maybe. And that's often the indicator, you know, like sometimes the re reaction somebody has to when they hear their type is it kind of reinforces it. So ones are devastated when they hear their type. Well, I did not want to be an eight. Yes. Ones, <laughs> threes don't like hearing their type. Sevens love it. 
until you really Understand get them to hear the darkness. Bear, right. <laughs> um, but my experience is most nines hear it and go, yeah, okay. Okay. That's almost about right. And then it's months, maybe years later where it really starts to hit us like, oh my goodness, this is the reality of my life. So for hmm. ones reform the world where it's like, um, things are perfect or imperfect for nines, it's more reconciled or unreconciled because it's all about peace. And I love like the Hebrew word peace, shalom, meaning like wholeness or togetherness. Like that mm-hmm. is the primary desire mm-hmm. of a nine's existence. And so we're always measuring the world in terms of resolution and, and uh, irresolution, I guess, and trying to maintain that sense of peace in relationship and community and within ourselves. And that just takes a lot of energy. So nines tend to be very go along, get along, but often at the expense of our own desires or will. So we quickly surrender that because when we're little, we internalize this message that when you assert your opinions or your thoughts or your feelings, Mm -hmm. that tends to rock the boat. And so go ahead and pull back a little bit, kind of give other people space, let them determine where you're going to go and just go along with the flow. And so nines are very agreeable. And then every once in a while, we'll have these totally just random bursts of anger because they've been stuffing for so long. For so long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's usually pretty rare. Um, but when it comes along, it for scares them. Just like explode. Yeah. It, it yeah. scares them. Usually when I'm doing sure. this work with people and they go, well, I just don't think I'm really an angry person. I go, okay, let's explore the possibility that you're probably a nine because you actually have a lot of anger. And I, that mm-hmm. was the biggest revelation for me mm-hmm. when I started going through it was I literally had would tell people, Oh, I don't have road rage. I have road sadness. Like I get bummed out when people cut me off. And then I realized later on, like, Oh my gosh, I'm actually (laughs) really pissed off. And like, but I just, but then you keep it, I just bury it. Right. Yeah. And I don't deal with it. And I already rebrand it as something else that's less stressful than anger is. So a lot of, that'd be pretty exhausting. Oh, absolutely. And I think for me, the big journey was re was coming to terms with how angry a person I am and then discovering practices that would help me to Mm. just feel, just feel in general, but especially anger. Right. Yeah. So there's the nine types. (laughs) We did it. So good. Gosh, (laughs) I could talk about this forever. Um, Could you give us one thing, one nuance that you're learning right now about like, Stacks, subtypes, mm. Hermie. Yeah. Like what, th- what, what, what right now is? Um, man, uh, stances. Stances. Yeah. I think because I'm teaching it and I'm one of those people for sure that it's like the more that I teach something, the more I'm seeing it. And then the more I can come back and I kind of weave that together, my own experience, mm-hmm. what I'm leading other people through one-on-one. And then what I'm teaching, like I'm doing a workshop in a couple of weeks and it'll just be on stances. And I think it's some of the most helpful work in terms of figuring out like, okay, what do I do to Mm. become a healthier person? That's what stances are. I think, I think stances set you up better to understand that. So stances are basically, uh, two things you're are involved, your orientation to time Mm -hmm. and then your relational energy. So it gets really Ah. personal quick where the, the theory, when you go around the nine types and you have that, those, those three triads of mm-hmm. like the body and the heart and the, um, and the mind, 
with the stances, I'm automatically talking about how you relate to other people, the mm-hmm. energy you're putting back out into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the holdups you might have in relationship, some of your best contrib- contributions in relationship, and then your orientation to time. Mm-hmm. Where do you tend to drift? Mm-hmm. Are you future oriented where to the expense of the present? where you're like rewriting the present as it's going, because you're just, let's go, let's go, let's go. Do you get so stuck in the past that you're always rewriting these things that happen? I could have, should have, would have. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Are you so present oriented mm-hmm. that you forget you've built up this relational currency with a person and then they disappoint you and you just go, I knew I couldn't trust them, you know, and you just, <laughs> and the, the whole thing is underwritten. So that kind of stuff to me starts to lead to the most practical work Hmm. because then I can begin to help people orient. And for myself as well, what are you reading? What are your rhythms like? What are your um, upstream spiritual practices, which is usually like things that really rub against your natural personality Mm -hmm. type. What are downstream? Fasting. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What are downstream spiritual uh, practices that Mm -hmm. are like, they actually come pretty easy, right? Maybe it just needs to be tweaked a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of that comes out of the stance work. So Very interesting. Yeah. Where do you think you love past, present, or future? I tend to be more past oriented. Mm. Um, I definitely rewrite, especially conflict or lack thereof. If there should have been conflict and Mm -hmm. there wasn't. Mm -hmm. So like this morning, if like my coworker was doing something that I should have, I should have said something about and dressed because I'm the guy and I just didn't do it. And I go, oh man, I should have said this. And then he would have said that. And then I could have said this. So that's, that tends to be something for me. Um, or if I'm working through a a bigger thing in my life, um, you know, recently it's ruminating. So my big revelation from the summer, if we're going to be vulnerable this past summer, this past summer okay, was, have I set aside living my own personal life for like quote unquote for the sake of the ministry mm-hmm. when it's really just been a series of non-decisions. Mm. Like, like I was saying, you know, before we were recording, like if I could live anywhere and do anything, what would I do? I just have no idea. Mm. Or like getting married, having kids, mm-hmm. like personal life stuff, always sacrificing it for like, Oh, it's just for the Like it's because I'm in the ministry mm-hmm. that I live this kind of life. And it's a rarefied kind of person just going like, is that really true? Or was it just an excuse to not be more assertive? So what have you come to? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's a little, I think it's a little from column A and a little from column B. Like I, I think I've lived an extraordinary life. I'm very thankful for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my past orientation actually helps me to think back and go like, you've done some weird and wonderful things and you've seen Mm -hmm. some amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, uh, what are the, what are the desires of my heart? Mm-hmm. And, um, and one of the elders at our church has really helped me work through this when we were talking about kids recently, because I was always in this position of like, well, yeah, I think I've always wanted kids. Sure. But you know, if it doesn't happen, like that's, I'll just be fine with that. You know, is that kind of like go along, get along. Mm-hmm. And she said, but what your you answers might be theologically accurate, but your heart wants what it wants. Mm-hmm. And can you trust that maybe God actually put those desires in your heart? And I was like, shit, <laughs> you know, and coming to terms like, how bad do I want these things mm-hmm. for me? And that's the bit. So nines tend to be self-forgetting twos are self-martyring. Okay. Yep. So I'm going to sacrifice me for you. Nines, I'm probably going to let you know. Yes. Yes, absolutely. 
I'm as a nine, I'm going to be self-forgetting. I'm going to do things for you without even thinking about mm-hmm. myself at all. Right. Because it didn't even enter your stream of consciousness. Never, never occurred to me. Right. But so, then you'll be angry because you're like, now I'm in a place where I'm not getting my needs met, yeah. but I've also not vocalized But it won't them. be until months later. Right. So, you know, you might not even hear about it. Right. Um, so interesting. So having to, having to come to terms with that in little things like that, like mm-hmm. what do I, like if we were going to go out to dinner, where do I want to eat? Mm-hmm. And making that like little things like that, um, little decisions like that are right. really important. How do I want to spend this Saturday? Um, and you know, it's like, like most things in life, you, you work out the muscles and the very small things and a bunch of very small things become the big things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, doing, you know, this, again, the season of Lent is really good for me to be able to slow down and work through some of that stuff, mm-hmm. um, to get in touch with buried feelings, anger being one of them, but there's right. a lot of other feelings in there. Um, and bringing them to the surface and really processing them. And- so interesting. Cause I think like I live, I live in the present. Mm-hmm. And so learning about this has been super influential for me. And I wish that maybe I have, have done more work on it. Yeah. Maybe I can, but just knowing it has been like, I'm like, ah, there's so many aha moments. I feel like within the Enneagram where yeah. I'm like, somebody knows me. Mm. Like I get, they get it. Like I, I am known. I think, <clears throat> by it gives language to I think how I'm created and like I don't spend a whole lot of time in the past so even just running a business like I should think about more like yeah. what went well what didn't go well right like sitting down analyzing that stuff it makes me want to like tear my eyeballs out I'm like okay yeah things went pretty well we could have done this better but I'm like I don't spend any time on that and then in the future the interesting thing is that like, I actually, well, I've been doing <clears throat> event planning for 15 years, but a lot of those years was like event execution. So okay. like you show up, you do your job and then you leave. So I wasn't as much doing the nitty gritty, like event planning as far as just like, okay, who's going to arrive when do we have tables? Do we have tablecloths? The, there's so, there's so much minutia yeah. that event planning is exhausting and I don't love like I'm, I'm at a place right now within my own business of trying to figure out the way forward and trying to think like, I don't love like planning. Like I don't love. Wow. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've known this for a long time, but I do it because I love the outcome. Right. If I could yeah, just, sure, 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 if I sure. could be at dinner parties, if I could be with people, if I could just show up And so with my old job, I could just show up, you work really long hours, you're in it with a team and you just, you grind and you execute and you make something amazing happen. Right. This, what I'm doing now is this like pulling teeth on a daily basis of like, I have to plan for the future, but it's not where I'm oriented, like Mm -hmm. where my body or my mind and my brain is what comes naturally. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that makes, it just makes so much sense to me that these are things that are against what comes natural. What comes natural is just like being, being with people in the moment, making decisions in the moment. Yeah. 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 Um, but I don't, I don't really love like 90% of what I'm doing. And you know, I found that common with eights because so if, if, 
nines, we don't often when you're answering, what, what do you want? What do you not want? That's very hard to answer. But a uh-huh. lot of times eights are pretty on top of that. Like I want this, 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 and this, and I don't want this, this, this. Yeah. This. And so your frustration comes of like, you have to freaking answer emails. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to sit down and do that. And this is stupid. And why can't I get anybody else to do this bit mm-hmm. so I can do the bit that I want to do, you know, and that, that eight, like very honed in, like, this is exactly how it is, Yeah, but it should be like this. Why isn't it like this? What, and eights can like see that? the big picture. Yeah. And so being able yeah, to totally. like be thinkers. here. And so not always trickle down to the details on the ground. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's definitely where I am, but I stick with it because I believe in it. Anyway, um, I would love for you to share with us for people that don't know you, I guess what your role is in around Orlando. Okay. Um, so I pastor a church called city, beautiful church Mm -hmm. and it's up by Lake Ivanhoe. Uh, I guess it's called the Ivanhoe district now. So you're about to have a lot of new neighbors. Oh my gosh. Like a considerable amount. Well, yeah. 700 units across the street in the yard. And then there's the one across the street from that. I don't even know what that one's called. It's got another fancy name, but there's going to be a bunch in there. Yeah. Like behind the Greek corner. There's more going up behind their Greek corner. Yeah. It used, there used to be a chapel there. Remember? Yeah. Now there's an apartment complex. Oh, and it looks like it's probably about the same pace of being developed as the yard, but it's not associated. Okay. Anyway, a lot of new people, um, which is, which is great. I'm really excited for it. I'm, I love, um, when I moved here, I moved here for the job and I was not excited about Orlando Yeah, because growing up or growing up, going to college in St. Augustine, we came, we drove right through to go to the parks or we would go to shows at like Will's pub or back booth or social. And then you got right back on the highway and you left because there was nothing in Orlando. You see? And, um, driving here, I was just like, I'm not super stoked on going, but okay. Like this is the thing. And I think I really, and I was really blessed to work with Cole at the beginning. Um, who's like Mr. Orlando born and bred. He's super involved in the arts, loves downtown because I got to see it through his eyes the first couple of years I was here. And to see a, um, a city figuring itself out at this point was Mm -hmm. really neat. Cause I come from Nashville where, right. Um, it's a pretty strong identity, pretty strong identity. And when I, when I left, it hadn't reached its, uh, saturation point, which it did not long after I left. I mean, I got to the point where I didn't recognize it, but coming here and seeing, you know, because the way Orlando's laid out, even it's like, okay, who are we going to be in Audubon park? What's Ivanhoe district going to be like, what's mills 50 going to be. And I just love that. I love Mm -hmm. seeing, and I love where we're at because we're connected to like those three communities. Right. Particularly, um, people just figuring it out and it's really exciting to kind of be in on the ground level of that. Yeah. So yeah, most of my time is spent shepherding my community and preaching and praying with people and being out and about, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I've seen you over the years really take a vested interest in the community that you're placed in and to see you hold space for people and love people well has been, I think, really inspiring to me and like what you're doing in the city to to cultivate um, community and growth. And of course, the past couple of years of your 
your offerings of the Enneagram, I think mm. is so important and amazing and, and needed. And so thank you for all that you are and do in our community yeah, and, and that you, I think, deeply care um, definitely to share corporately, but I think that you have a capacity to like understand where people are on an individual level, um, and make that important, you know, yeah. to them and to their growth. Um, and, and all the things that you do, uh, there is a lot. And you said you're kind of the lowest on the energy scale of yeah. any of the Enneagram. <laughs> Um, and I feel that too, cause I always, I'm like, I, I do a lot, but then when I'm done, I feel like I want to crash and do nothing. Yeah. Like, I don't want to go on a bike ride or like, I don't want to go. I mean, sometimes I do, but for the most part, it's like, I want to sit in my hammock or mm. I want to like read a book or cook. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. I, my energy level. I feel like I'm really on that eight, nine. Okay. We've passed that anyway. <laughs> so what are the things, what practices have you adopted, um, to kind of play, rest, discover, yeah. um, Sit, take a step back. Cause I think it's something that people don't do often enough. No, and we don't talk absolutely. about enough. Absolutely. I think and we're in an epidemic of epidemic busyness. of, yeah, which I feel is such bullshit. And then like the importance and the health of, of having a Sabbath. Mm -hmm. is, yeah. I think that, and I think the biggest thing is proactive rhythms. Yeah. I think I, especially when I got into this job, because it's not, I wasn't trained to do this. Like I, you know, I grew up with my dad being a pastor. So I witnessed a lot of it, but I, I've just been playing jazz for like almost 10 years now mm -hmm. in ministry. And, um, the biggest lesson really has been for myself is like prevention is better than cure where I was like sure. crashing or verging on burnout and be mm. like, I need to change direction. Mm -hmm. So it's been making a series of rhythms in my life to take care of myself in that regard that have been so helpful. So like, um, like in my community, we, I've, I've talked to people about it as like maturity is like choosing not to choose. So, you know, in the Christian life, for example, like for me, Sundays are non-negotiables. I don't make plans on Sunday mornings. Now, of course I work for the church. So that's a thing, but like saying like, I need a rhythm of worshiping in community mm -hmm. and that's just going to be there. And then, um, if I've had a community group for a season, like on Wednesday nights going, I don't make plans on Wednesdays. Cause I think the temptation in our modern era is like, well, I could go to my community group or I could go to this thing, you know, mm -hmm. and it's not a hard and fast rule. That's sure. not the thing, but it's going by and large. I know what I'm doing with my Wednesdays. I'm spending it with these people and I'm investing in the long term because this is the other problem. In a cult of spontaneity, so many of us are skipping across the surface of life and we never get to the good stuff of relationship. Mm -hmm. We'll try something for three months and go, oh, didn't work. All right, on to the next thing. Right. And we're, our souls are crying out for deep connection mm -hmm. that you can only get through investment in time, you know? So I try, I have relational rhythms that are become really important. And a big thing recently has been, uh, well, I shut down all my work stuff Friday at five. So we use Slack. I use Trello and email. Mm -hmm. Those three apps, they get shut down Friday at five. I will open them up Sunday before we do church and then shut them down again. And then they open up Tuesday morning. I don't respond to those things. Mm -hmm. um, that's big deal. Uh, differentiating rest and play. 
Yeah. There's a recent one. Mm -hmm. So with my days off, I do at least one day of real rests or at least two thirds of the day if mm -hmm. I can. And then one that's play. And then I try to bunch all of my chores, you know, because <laughs> I, you know, I think the way each type approaches Sabbath is really key. Yeah. It could be very different. Yeah. So like, I like talk to my friend who's a three mm -hmm. and like her day of rest. No I'm rest like, rest. have you, are, have you lost your mind? Like yeah. this is enjoyable to you? She's right. like, yes, being active, writing something. I'm like, right. But it's, oh, I, see, I would push back and go, it's not actually rest. See, cause so my, my mom is a one and mm -hmm. for uh, like days off where excuses to go and do and be active and do chores and all this mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and I found that's very common, like ones, threes, maybe eights, sevens D rest is just activity. So that I might be play. Yeah. But like genuinely, I mean, it's cool that you're saying like, you want to come home and you want to just sit in the hammock and read a book, like real rest. But I also think it can look different for different people. It can. Yeah. But it's, it, I think the more you can differentiate those two things, mm -hmm. the, the more play helpful it and is. like physical rest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cause like for me, so nines and fours and fives were in what's called the withdrawing stance. We're not doers. We're doing repressed people. So we're very prone to mm -hmm. counterfeit rest. That's binge watching Netflix right. and just sleeping in too long. It's not, we're not engaged in anything that's actually Physical. giving us life. Right. Mm -hmm. um, whereas we might not be particularly good at play. So, so the more you can differentiate rest and play, the more helpful it is. So um, I've been really trying to do that. Like I uh, went birding for the first time yesterday with a friend who's a big bird watcher. Cool. Yeah. We mm -hmm. went to Barber Park and we went to Lou Gardens. We saw like 40 different species in three hours and I was outside and walking and I said, what is that? And tell me about this and like learning. Mm -hmm. So that's very much play to me, you know, as opposed to like Sunday, was it Sunday afternoon? Um, sitting outside, reading, mm -hmm. listening to my music, you know, like that's rest. Yeah. So you ready for the big question? Yeah. That's been coming. Okay. Okay. So if you had a day, oh, money is of no object. You can <laughs> yeah. do whatever you want. What would be like the most enjoyable kind of day off for you? Yeah. So being a, not a future oriented person, I forgot that you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> Already? <laughs> this is just. Even when we talked about something similar about right. like 10 minutes ago. Um, the ideal day has a really good balance of like alone time. Um, and together time. So I'd say that it caps off. I think it's probably the easiest. It caps off with a party at my house and I bought myself a really big dining table last Christmas oh. because I wanted people to come over and to use it. Mm -hmm. And so I've been getting really good at like cooking for lots of people and having them bring stuff and saying a big table. And I've got a, a bar where people bring drinks and make mixed drinks. I've heard of this. And, I've heard of this. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And like, that would be how I'd want to cap off the day. Okay. And, um, cap is in the end. Yeah. Like yes. have everybody over for dinner and we're just going to hang out until whenever. Okay. And, um, sometimes we've done like group games and that kind of thing, but I just love watching people do their thing. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and not, they're not being too much structure. I think there's a lot of power to just good food and good people and see what happens. You know, you, you know this very well. And, um, so I would start it off like that. And I love, I love days that start 
just quietly. Mm, slow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A slow start to the day, a good cup of coffee, some reading, some prayer, and just enjoying. I have a beautiful Florida room that I love to sit out in if it's like, you know, maybe it's still a little too chilly outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of get your... We're, we're edging on that, like, is it going to be chilly anymore? Yeah. Yeah. I know. So now it's more straight outside, but... Hold on while we can. Yeah. 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 So it sounds like a my ideal day is pretty awesome because I do that pretty regularly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not like flying off to the moon or, you know, doing anything crazy like that. It sounds like a pretty wonderful day. If we could find you on social media or the online world, how would people find you and know what you're doing? What you're up to? Oh boy. I don't feel like I inform people what I'm doing much on social media. Make a lot of cooking jokes. <laughs> cooking jokes? Yeah. I I got in this habit of like on Instagram with the Insta stories, like when I find a funny phrase in a cooking book, like taking it too literally and like dicing onions and throwing a bunch of dice on them and stupid stuff like that. I don't know. Okay. So, all right. Yeah. I don't okay. know. It, <laughs> It's, I'm, I'm not very good at the pastoral brand. You know, I have contemporaries that like everything they post online is like spiritually related. Cl- yeah. Yeah. And mine's not, there's a lot of nonsensical things on there, but I would say, um, you can find me on Facebook. My name is also really hard to find Ryan Adams. Like it's a lot of people and things come up with that name, but, right. um, I think I'm the only one in Orlando. So, right. and then our, then our church is, um, city, beautiful church. We're on Instagram and Facebook and that's a great way to see what I'm doing. Cause You're, I'm doing what they're doing, right? we're doing, you know? So we've got a, like, we got an Enneagram workshop coming up on March 21st mm-hmm. from 10 to three. We're going to, I'm going to teaching on stances. And then I'm really excited for breaking up into personality types and having people just talk. I'll give questions and going, mm. okay, all of us as eights or as aggressive stance people, like how have we experienced that? Or do you have any stories? Like, what have you done with this? And just learning from each other. And I'm really excited for that. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Maybe you can try to come for the second half of that. You should be. That'd be awesome. Thank you so much for taking your time. Spending with me. me. This was great. Yeah. It's a lot of fun for me. So I'm glad until the next time. Thank you a million times over for listening to Cocktails and Conversation Podcast. I hope you have enjoyed all of it. If you have, would you do me a huge favor and rate, comment, and subscribe for more Cocktails and Conversation. 